negligence suddenly exhibit bizarre behavior, such as a man entering a baseball game with a shotgun and a neighborhood farmer trapping his wife and son in a closet, then setting the house on fire. These changes are observed by David, the sheriff of Pierce County, and his pregnant wife Judy, the community doctor. Sheriff David and Deputy Russell discover a military craft has crashed in the town's river supply. This leads David to suspect its cargo has contaminated their water supply, which could have caused the town's strange behavior. <laughs> to another great episode of the Boo Review. Now we have a doozy of, of one today that I was, I was pretty pretty interested in doing. Um, but the whole the whole town's just gone mad. It makes sense later, trust me. But um, we got some we got a, we got some creepy things today. Um, you know, as well as the movie review at the end, which chances are you probably, um, already guessed what it was, maybe. But anyway, let's get, let's get, now this is, this is a good one. This, this folklore is Japanese folklore, okay? And, uh, it only took me like, uh, two hours to pronounce the name, um, somewhat correctly. But I'll tell you the easier version. Her name is uh, the Slip Mouth Woman. And uh, that's the easy version. So bear with me as I try to pronunciate it correctly. Kugasegana. Kugasegana was a woman who was mutilated during her life. With her mouth being slit from ear to ear. In some versions of the story, Kukasekana was the adulterous wife or mistress of a samurai during her life. As punishment for her infidelity, her husband sliced the corners of her mouth from ear to ear. Other versions of the tale include that her mouth was, mut was uh, mutilated during a medical or dental procedure, and that she was mutilated by a woman who was jealous of her beauty, or that her mouth is filled with numerous sharp teeth. After her death, the woman returned as a vengeful spirit. She covers her mouth with a cloth mask, often specified, you know, as a surgical mask, and in some iterations, a hand fan or handkerchief. Basically, she just covers her freaking mouth, okay? You get it? She also carries a sharp instrument with her, which has been described as a knife, a machete, a sith, or a large pair of scissors. She is said to ask potential victims if she thinks she is attractive, 
often phrased as Watasha Kairi, which translates to Am I pretty or am I beautiful? If the person answers no, she will kill the person with her weapon. And if the person answers yes, she will reveal her mutilated mouth. She then repeats her question. Even with this, or even now, if the person responds with no or screams in fright, she will kill the person with her weapon. If the response is yes, she will slice the corners of the person's mouth from ear to ear, resembling her own disfigurement. That sucks. Either way you look at it, you're getting sliced and diced or killed one way or the other. An individual can survive an encounter with Kukasekana by using one of her several methods. Okay, listen up, guys. This is, this is how you evade her, okay? In some versions of the legend, Kukasekana will leave the potential victim alone if, 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 they answer yes to both of her questions, though in other versions, she will visit the individual's residence later that night and murder the person while they're sleeping. Wow, there's so many variations. I mean, you roll the dice. Other survival tactics include replying to Kukasekana's question by describing her appearance as average. <laughs> I, okay, giving the individual enough time to run away, <laughs> distracting her by giving a th or throwing money or hard candies, particularly the kind of candy known as Becca Aim made of caramelized sugar in her direction as she will stop to pick them up. <laughs> or by saying the word pomade three times. Pomade? It is, it is impossible to run away from her due to her supernatural speed. So why is it? Okay. In South Korea, she is known as the Red Masked Woman literally means red mass woman if you answer no to her question she slits your throat if you answer yes she gives you to the traditional scar <laughs> okay well anyways history goes by this guy named Matthew Meyer which is a, a folklorist he describes the Kukasegana uh, legend as having roots dating back to Japan's Edo period, which spanned from the 17th to the 19th centuries. In print, the legend of the Kukasegana dates back to at least um, as early as 1979. The legend was reported in such publications as the Gifford Prefecture newspaper uh, in 1979. Now, historian and uh, author Shigeru Mizuka considered uh, Kukasegana to be an example of yoki, a term which referred to a variety of supernatural monsters, spirits, and demons in Japanese folklore. According to Zach, a translator of many Mizuki's works, when Mizuki put her in one of the newest uh, yoki encyclopedias, that's when she officially was considered a yoka. And, you know, I, I find that to be pretty, uh, I find it to be pretty interesting. 
I mean, it, it, it's pretty terrifying. There's also a few now. It's funny how we do reviews, and I might have to do a review on this. But um, it's called um, Carved, the Slipmouth Woman. There's another movie um, followed by Carved 2, the Scissors Massacre. So maybe we'll watch one of these. Um, and uh, maybe we'll give a, give a review on it. Because, I mean, it sounds pretty interesting to me. Um, I know it's probably going to be completely uh, bushly. I can only Im- probably imagine. Um, but that's all right. That is that is all right. I'm down, I'm down with that. Um, <laughs> it's just it's through hard. That just got me. I'm not mad. I try to be serious with this. And I'm usually pretty good with being serious. Um... But that's, I mean, that's a little, that's a little bit, you know, it's no matter what answer you give her or anything, anything like that. Because uh, other, other reports I, I read, it says, uh, you know, sell her average to can get her thinking. And like I see some, it says, um, you're okay or so-so. So whatever it is you're doing, it just can't be a definite answer, and then it will just like I guess completely confuse her, and then she gets you. It's which is weird because it says that it gives you time to to run away, but then it says you can't you can't run away because she's supernatural. So it don't matter how you know, and then like sometimes it says that she would show up when you're sleeping to and to slit your throat. I mean, it's a lot of conflicts there. Um, yeah, other reports is from seventies to seventy-nine, supposedly chasing children. Um, she was struck by a car and killed while in the midst of such a chase. She did have a torn mouth, similar to the story. This one was likely the cause of the panic in the late seventies. Um, you know, it says here that the legend has not died, though. Uh, resurfaced in the early 2000s and still prevalent today. The means of escape is now telling the ghost you have a previous appointment to attend to, at which point she'll exhaust her poor manners and depart. The legend has even spread to South Korea, where she appears with the blood, which we've seen that part there, the blood red face mask. Ooh, that's a lot of work, the blood face breast mask. Blood, blood red face mask. But, um, yes. Um, I think, uh, that we should, uh, see that they're saying that the movie, uh, 1996 called Kukasekana, and it has a sequel and prequel. Um, also, Slip Mouth Woman can be found on Netflix. So, we'll have to look at that. Maybe, maybe I'll. Try to watch some today of it um, and give my review on it on another podcast episode. But, um, yeah, I mean, you better confuse her, ladies and gents, because she will come and take you out. I have an appointment. Okay. It's time to move on now to, well, if you may have already guessed it. But, uh, 
Cryptid of the Week. Cryptid of the Week. Now, this cryptid here, I can sit there and lie to you and say, you know, be all skeptic and say, it's all video, it's all hoax. I don't care. It makes for a good story regardless. Now, in Fresno, California, there are these things called Fresno Nightcrawlers. Now, Like they're always trying to the first thing they always do is try to like throw it away. They're like, Oh no, this is this is it, this is it. People well, you know, don't get me wrong, there are some fake accounts in this, fake uh you know, um videos of this. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um I don't care. Take it you know, every every story has a grain of truth. Regardless. Of what the total outcome is. But. Now. The Fresno, California. Might not always be the most exciting place in the world. But it has one claim to fame. That's out of this world. The Fresno Nightcrawler sightings. Began back in the 1990s. And have only occurred a few times since then. These strange beings are cryptids. That look like pants but are only a few feet high and seen just wandering around. There are only a few eyewitnesses in Fresno, but the nightcrawlers do pop up on surveillance cameras, startling whoever checks the CCTV tapes. Much video footage of these cryptids easily debunked by video analysis, but the weird thing about the nightcrawlers is that the videos seem to be legit. According to the experts on the sci-fi channel's fact or fake, faking these mysterious creatures would prove to be a difficult task. So what exactly is on these tapes? And no one is entirely sure, but the theorists propose the odd creatures could be ghosts, aliens, <laughs> or a possessed pair of pants. No one may ever know for sure However, the known facts about the Fresno Nightcrawlers are enough to leave viewers scratching their heads. The Nightcrawlers began to emerge in the limelight in 2007. A homeowner in Fresno, California decided to set up a security camera above the family garage. The man, only known as Jose, wanted to know why his dogs barked at night. In case there was an intruder or strange animal lurking, what he saw the next day was enough to shock him into calling the police. The footage showed a pair of strange small creatures only a few feet in height, and they walked almost surreally across the screen. The family members figured it was the these things they had caused their dogs to bark so much. Neither the family or police could figure out what these creatures were. Soon the media got a hold of the footage and the Fresno Nightcrawlers became a phenomenon. The family decided to remain anonymous, even though we know Jose, is part to avoid the supernatural spotlight, but also in part out of fear. One of the prevailing theories about these creatures is that they are aliens. They may move like people sometimes, yeah, like people without an upper torso um, or feet, but 
analysts think that they are too small and move too awkwardly to be human. And by the way, I did see this video as well as the ones that's on um, Paranormal, caught on Paranormal um, Travel Channel. I will agree, uh, it was super freaking awkwardly walks to be a human. But based on their appearance, they don't resemble any known terrestrial creatures either. Now, Redditors, those, those Redditors, question why they are, you know, here. As they don't seem to be stealing anything, doing anyone any harm, or abducting any person or animals. Theorists wonder if they are alien creatures here to study human life, even though they have never been accompanied by UFOs. One of, you know, more interesting answers to many Nightcrawler questions actually has to do with the local Native American legend. According to the tribe, members that live near Fresno, the Nightcrawlers are beings that are pretty much always lived on Earth, even before humans got here. According to these myths, the Nightcrawlers have long legs that allow them to move through difficult or boggy landscapes because they are swamp world beings. Now, legend has it that the beings are part of a world now in order to rebuild a connection between human beings and our natural surroundings as sort of a peace bringer. While they don't seem to have made any noticeable efforts of doing this so far, <laughs> other than walking around, the fact the stories about them having existed for generations indicates they may, you know, might be nothing new to Fresno, just to the people. If I, and before we move on, I find that very interesting because before this technology and it's, it was on TV and I mean, dude, you know, Native American lore was generations before this explaining the exact same thing. So to me, that's a proof right there. I don't care these hoax. I don't, you, you agree, we're getting away from the main thing here, you know is that it's not something just made up all of a sudden. With anything, there's hoax. Bigfoot's been around forever. And people would hoax that up like crazy. So the hoax thing, I don't care about that. But the fact that we have Native Americans talking about generations um, that were, you know, lore that was told about these creatures well before technology, come on. To me, that right there seals the deal for the for the Fresno Nightcrawlers for me, right? This period. I don't care if there's hoax and fakes. You get that about every cryptid. Now, in March of 2011, Yosemite National Officers, or National Park Officers, officials were putting up cameras in an attempt to, this is the one I've seen, uh, an attempt to catch trespassers that have been damaging the property. Instead, what they caught was something rather unusual. The security cameras again captured images of pale, small, armless creatures just walking down one of the park paths. Again, once the media got a hold of the footage, the Fresno Nightcrawlers were on everyone's lips once more. The creatures appeared to be the same as the ones that had shown up in the Fresno film. They had appeared to walk and behave in the exact same way. There were a handful of alert sightings, but neither... You know, Yosemite nor Fresno had them show up anymore on security footage. Now, one thing the viewers seem to agree on, regardless what people say they are or what the creatures look like, 
They seem to have bodies that get up to four feet on height, but no taller. One might have been less than two feet tall. The night crawlers don't seem to have any arms. Their heads are small compared to the rest of their bodies. Um, the night crawlers are pale in color, perhaps white. May have two small eyes, which people have found after some footage analysis. But you know, above all, they are bipedal, which indicates that for the strangeness, strangeness, they are humanoid. This has led to the suggestion that they may just be people in costumes, but based on the facts, they walk like humans. But they may also be some sort of uh, mutant human, according to others. But their height and mannerisms contradict that notion, yet again leaving viewers wonder about the origin of Nightcrawlers. See, here's, here's, here's a part for me that changed my skepticism toward people who are just screwing around and then the real deal. Like I said, I'm going to bring it back to the Native American folklore. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, come on. There's, no one brings that up. No one brings up that the Native American legend told for generation generation was this figure. I mean, they have they have the lore before technology started making hoax and media got a hold of it and screwed it up. This legend was still always there. So, to me, that's proof in its own. And what's the odds it matches up? I mean, you know, it could be people who just now, you know, internet has surfaced <clears throat> and they can, you know, create what they've heard but now since the night crawlers have been strangely quiet there are no more spooky you know security footage tapes and no actual encounters even though these things are pretty weird they seem to be harmless and by the way no don't tell me they're harmless I don't care <laughs> I don't want to get near it you know what I mean hey look you're pretty weird but you seem to be harmless Nothing was ever damaged by them, and they didn't seem to hurt anyone. In fact, they didn't seem to be at all interested in making human contact. No one's had any run-ins with them, and in the history of Fresno, no one has reported having a close encounter with a nightcrawler, although people may maintain to have caught a glimpse of one here or there. And here's one I don't know if you know a lot of people knew or not. Everybody thinks it's just Fresno nightcrawlers. But, um, they do appear to travel in Paris. I know. Another tidbit about nightcrawlers, they do not travel alone. Most times, when they are cryptid sightings, they are of lone creatures, just a single Bigfoot running through the woods, or a strange alien coming to your bedroom. Um, but nightcrawlers specifically seem to travel in twos. One is generally smaller than the other, which could suggest that one is a child, that one is of a different sex than the other, or perhaps that one is simply dominant over the other. While we may never know, the fact that they come into twos is something that has been observed numerous times. Now, speaking of pairs, there is something else rather odd that has been observed with the nightcrawlers that may have been wearing clothing. In both videos, creatures move as if they're walking humanoids. But the area around their legs flap as if encased in some form of fabric. So many people, you know, have said they look like a pair of pants. 
not only brought up the idea that maybe some form of puppet encased in a pair of pants, but also they may not be living creatures like ghosts. Both Yosemai and Fresno have been home to fascinating and horrific deaths, and have plenty of creepy ghost stories floating around. But only humans are known to wear clothing. Some speculate the footage could be showing wayward spirits. Now, <clears throat> of course, the biggest prevailing theory in this is, uh, well, a hoax. The creatures do rather, you know, look silly and awkward to most, and they may have some sort of puppet rather than actually alive. But while it's never been proven, the videos were weird enough to get the attention of sci-fi TV show called Fact or Faked, and the paranormal experts set out to examine the video. The analysis watched the uh, creatures themselves and soon figured out they were indeed only a few feet tall and had been previously reported. Then they went out looking for an actual encounter but were unable to find the nightcrawlers. The sci-fi team tried to recreate the video with many different known hoax techniques. All their attempts to recreate the footage were met with failure. Do you see that guys and girls? People tell you it's a, it's a hoax, okay? This is a sci-fi team, a bunch of uh, scientists and, and analytical people. All their attempts to recreate the footage were met with failure. Now, in the end, they decided the footage would be too difficult to fake, if not impossible. So, and the video footage was authentic. Yeah, see? Told you. Who cares? You know, it, like I, I go back to the lore. I go back to the American lore. Now, one other odd little piece of the puzzle might relate back to the Native. What's up? Let me get my tongue twist, untwisted here. One other odd little piece of this puzzle might relate back to the Native American lore about the beings, like I've already said. Sometimes, after the sightings occurred, a series of photos depicting statues that looked like these creatures popped up online. They are carved in wood and may be of a Native American origin, perhaps depicting the swamp behind um, Fresno's native locals. Now, hats more is that it seems to be photographed in multiple places, perhaps even internationally. Unfortunately, no one seems to know where these statues um, were actually located at when they were photographed. <laughs> when they were um, photographed. The photos themselves are passed to a source in Florida by a woman in New Jersey. Also, rumors in the statues are near DMV somewhere in California. Now, I still unknown where the various statues are, who made them, and uh, if they have any connection at all to the Nightcrawlers. But, uh, it, see, like I said, people always think themselves, oh, it's only in Fresno. That's why they're called Fresno, you know, Fresno Nightcrawlers. Well, yeah. The Nightcrawlers may have been sighted even before or around the same time it showed up in the radar of Fresno. However, this time they were in Manchester, Manchester Indiana. Indiana has uh, been a hotbed for paranormal activity in 2004. A 17-year-old motorist allegedly saw a strange thing on the side of the road when driving at night. It was thin with long legs, looked humanoid without being truly human, moved oddly as if disjointed, and was described similar to the creatures in Fresno, but with one major difference. And this is a big difference. This one was on a maximum of four feet, 
This was over six feet tall. I'm thinking they've seen Slenderman, which if you don't know who Slenderman is, we'll get on that another time. A second car passed a figure containing two elderly passengers who saw the being. They conferred with the most motorist, other motorists, and all three AA agree that they have uh, seen what was not human. They drove together out of the area, obviously rattled by the experience. Whether or not this is the same creature seen in Fresno is uncertain, but if it was, we may be dealing with these critters in more areas than just California. Wow. I mean, I know it's a lot to, uh, lot to take in. A lot to take in, but that's... <sighs> wow. You know, that's all I can say is wow. You know, like I said, on TV and, and you read certain things and people just, they're instantly like, oh, no, that's fake. That's fake. Yeah, there's hoaxes. People claim it's hoaxes. Well, I mean, we have no problems believing in Bigfoot. You know, and there's been tons of hoaxes. And we'll go on another name um, later on about one of the biggest hoaxes for real hoaxes um, of Bigfoot. And they made money from it. Richard Dyer. Um, that's a whole different thing. But anyways, it's still encrypted. Still got sightings. But this right here, though, like I said, analytics. Two points you can take from Fresno Nightcrawlers. I don't care who tells you differently. First things first. It came from, you know, it's not just something that's made up, just seen. It was a Native American lore. Explained the exact same ways it was seen. You know, minus the pants and stuff or whatever. But you, you know what I mean? The two figures. Side by side. In twos. Tall. Four feet max. One tall, one short. So between that and then, uh, you know, you got these high paid analytical team that try to recreate the, the uh, videos in every way possible they thought fit. And uh, said it was an absolute failure. And that uh, it was either extremely difficult, even above their knowledge, to recreate, or honestly couldn't be recreated at all, which gives the uh, authentic check mark on these uh, Fresno videos. So take it as you will. Okay, now, and you know already, this is the portion where we take care of a. This was a pretty, you know, more and more I looked into this one here, the bigger it became of the uh, the UFO sighting or this big uh, incident that took, you know, it took place in a small Massachusetts town. <clears throat> Actually, really freaky. But this uh, event is the uh, 1969 Berkshire UFO incident. On September 1st, 1969, about 40 people in Berkshire County, Massachusetts reported seeing a UFO. The one boy named Thomas Reed claimed that he and his family were all taken aboard. Now, in 1969, residents of Berkshire County, Massachusetts went into a panic after multiple people reported seeing a UFO. The significant... Um, Mother reached far beyond the area and captivated people all over America. In Roswell, New Mexico, a replica of the alleged vessel was even displayed at the International UFO Museum. Because there is a photo 
which I looked at, and it, like I said, I think it's very compelling. But in 2015, also, a group of residents who witnessed the 1969 UFO res, uh, incident raised funds to build a monument for it, which also um, is just in the middle of by a covered bridge. But let's get a little further into the actual incident. Now, on the evening of September 1st, 1969, strange lights descended on the town of Sheffield, located in the southern Berkshires. Many who saw these lights said that they were attached to a UFO. Now, according to witness accounts, the UFO in question was a disc-shaped craft that performed acrobatic maneuvers in the sky above the Berkshires. Unclear exactly how long the phenomenon lasts, but many witnesses of the alert UFO encounters described losing track of time. The Berkshires is a region of rural highlands in western Massachusetts. It encompasses large swaths of wildness, wilderness, making it a popular tourist destination for hikers and uh, nature lovers during the summer. The Berkshires are also made up of mostly small towns, which, in the case of curious extraterrestrial beings, make it an ideal spot to visit. However, the seemingly brief UFO encounter was apparently powerful enough to leave a lingering sense of mass confusion in its wake. School children were drawing UFOs in class while adults were called in at a local radio station to explain what they had seen. We had listeners call the radio station that evening, said David. General manager of local radio station WSBS. At the time, they didn't know it was a UFO. They just, you know, called the station to say something bizarre has happened. Now, many people who saw the strange light vessel that night were left bewildered. No one seemed to know that they saw, but they knew they, you know, saw something. The incident since has been dubbed the 1969 Berkshire UFO. It was later estimated that about 40 people reported seeing this UFO. Some of them who were children at the time still live in the area today. Children coming into school uh, were talking about the event, said Robert, the director of the Great Barrington Historical Society in 2018. An old student of mine, one is a local shop owner whose father was the police chief in town. So these are reliable people. They're not self-promoters. And I agree with this, by the way. The witness accounts were so plentiful and compelling that the local Great Barrington Historical Society recognized the encounter as the first off-world UFO case in U.S. history. As about 45 years later, it got that, you know, it was, was dubbed that title. But, you know, I guess we can always ask ourselves, as usual, is did it actually happen? But whether or not you believe the witness stories, the Berkshire UFO in 1969 was no doubt a remarkable event for the townspeople of Sheffield. While many have admitted to seeing the UFO vessel or its strange lights, the most prominent eyewitness is by far Thomas Reed. According to Reed's account, he saw the UFO when he was nine years of age. On September 1st, 1969, while he was in the car with his mother, grandmother, and brother. As Reed recalled, the family was heading home from the restaurant village on the green, and he was busy, you know, giving his brother a little fireball candy. Suddenly, they noticed a mass of glowing lights peeking out from behind the lush trees on the empty road. 
The strange lights continued to spill out from behind the trees and family crossed the covered Sheffield Bridge, but they didn't know what to make of the sight. We all looked up at it because it was kind of a self-contained glow, Reed said. It rose up a little bit, looked like it followed the dirt road, which I'm sure it probably didn't, but it appeared that way because we could see it through the trees. The light started to bleed through once we broke into a little bit of the clearing. We could see inside the car so the light was flooding the inside of the car. After an ember glow emerged on both sides of the road, Reed recalled being taken to a hangar-like area that was bigger than a football field. We encountered something, Reed said. It was definitely not of this world. We had a black and white television at the time and the imagery that we saw on the thing was unbelievable. There were lights that looked like fluorescent tubing inside the hangar. This hallway we had seen was circular with a wide configuration almost to the control, the flow of traffic. This one room had a uh, bowed-in wall, bowed-in bowed, bowed wall that was rounded. This was not something that you could, would have seen in 1969 anywhere else. I have no idea where I was, but I know that I saw was very different than anything I've ever seen today 50 years later. Now, glimpses of this strange place muddied his brain until he realized that he was in back of the inside of the car. His grandmother and mother had switched seats. More astonishingly, there was no more glowing lights, Reed said. <clears throat> Everything got really calm. It was like being in the middle of a hurricane, but there was like a barometric change in pressure. It was just like a dead silence. There was an eruption of crickets and frogs and it got really loud, and that was it, Reed said, adding that it was all quite confusing. Reed has been the most vocal witness in the 1969 Berkshire UFO. He helped convince other witnesses to pull money together to erect a 5,000-pound concrete monument, which was built by the covered Shefford Bridge, where he saw the UFO with his family. Benching and lighting decorations were also placed around the monument after it was erected. Later, Reed performed the non-profit. Now keep in mind, non-profit. So this dude's not just doing it. He's not doing it for the money. It's non-profit. <clears throat> Later, Reed performed or formed the non-profit UFO Monument Park Incorporated to maintain the plot of land where the monument stood. But, you know, what story wouldn't have controversy, right? World of 19, the word of 1969 Berkshire UFO reached beyond Sheffield in Roswell, New Mexico, which, of course, if you don't already know, it's location of another infamous UFO encounter, also where supposedly they are. Anyways, the International UFO Museum put up a display of the alleged Berkshire craft. Although the town of Sheffield soon embraced the Berkshire UFO incident first, the novelty of the story has worn off on, among some residents in recent years. Disagreements between those who believed the UFO monument marked a significant event in the town's history, and those who saw the monument um, as an eyesore it began to boil over. In 2019, just about four years after it was erected, the town removed the Berkshire UFO monument. The town's attorney's assessment that the monument had been erected on town property quickly paved the way for a lawful removal. According to Reed, 
there was no issues with the town's officials during the plans to build the UFO monument, but officials painted it a different story. It's kind of town property, and no one decided it could go there, said town administrator Rhonda. Must be like the uh, old school Karen. The town has bylaws. If we let one place put something up, then why can't someone else? I don't want that to happen. According to a town land survey, the monument's location was on a town right-of-way and had to be removed. To add insult to injury, other parties withdrew their public support for the monument as well. In 2018, a spokesman for Massachusetts, Governor Charlie Baker, whose signature was sealed onto the UFO monument, told the Boston Globe that the signature had been issued in error. Yeah, what a weenie. The Great Barrington Historical Society, which described the Mass Berkshire UFO sighting as a significant and true event in 2015, then backpedaled on a support too. I think the Historical Society regrets that our words, our decisions have been taken out of context. Who had the uh, incident was significant to the town, but the organization should have focused on one individual, an obvious reference to Reed. Um, in 2019, after there were no efforts by Reed and his colleagues to remove the structure, the town hauled away the UFO monument for good. The monument was removed at a considerable expense to the town, said Selectman Martin Missoff. We could not give the precise cost of the removal. Unfortunately, the party responsible was not responsive. Meanwhile, Reed said that he and his colleagues would fight the removal. But despite the human drama surrounding the event, the 1969 Berkshire UFO sighting continues to fascinate UFO enthusiasts from, from all over the world. And perhaps the Unsolved Mysteries series will bring us just a little bit closer to answers, and maybe even a resolution. <clears throat> I found that to be a very interesting story. Like, very interesting story. Um, it's only it's crazy about it is that the, you know, the whole town's in on it when it comes to support. And what they seen, they didn't back down. And then, as soon as the monument, I mean, okay, you know, read. I know it's, oh man, I know it's nonprofit. I know it's nonprofit, so he's not doing this for. It just sucks because he's not doing it for. You know, I mean, he had. I don't know. I don't know how to take it really. I mean, he. He does a non-fame organization for the monument, so he's not making, you know, he's not doing nothing for nothing. But the way he's dressed, all snazzy, fazzy. But yeah, there's no reports of a book or anything he's made. Not, you know, I'm not reading nothing or found nothing yet. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not seeing nothing. He's not making money off the off his um, story of the town. So you know, it sucks because it looks like he just the intentions were to just make that a spot since that's where it happened. And then Karen, I call it Karen. Karen's like, nah, we let one, we let all. Which I'm sure somebody else might have wanted something. I don't know. But it just sucks because, you know, really, you know, in his, you know, there's a lot of, the whole town was with him. Everybody's together in unison that something happened. And then as soon as the freaking Karen came and moved the statue, then everybody's like, what? No, and then the national, you know, the society there. But anyways, moving on now to some uh, new creepy pasta.
Now, today's creepypasta, like I said, I don't know if it's going to be good or not because, you know, um, it does have a 6.8 rating. Um, remember, I just look at it, what sounds to be creepy, cool, um, and then I just read it so it's new for both of us. Today's story is written by Derek Artland. It's called Grandma's Teeth. Cue that scary music. When, when I was just a little kid, my grandmother on my mother's side once scared me to death. I never forgotten that terrifying moment of my youth. Until now, it was just a fond memory of a silly little boy in his Scooby-Doo pajamas, running down the hall and screaming at the top of the lungs as his grandma gave chase. Looking back on it, it was really kind of funny. It was Halloween night of 1981. My little brother Nathan and I had been trick-or-treating in a small rural community Oh, Northeastern Ohio. By the way, none of this is planned, like I said. And I am from Ohio, so... Uh, Northeast, I'm, I'm ready to see where this is uh, heading, hopefully. <clears throat> Let's redo that. It was Halloween night of 1981. My little brother Nathan and I had been trick-or-treating in a small rural community of northeastern Ohio. I was on the Headless Horseman that year, and Nate was a scarecrow from the Wizard of Oz. My mom had lovingly made these costumes herself. And somewhere in the box, there still remains a Polaroid of the two of us, choosing it up for the camera. I really should find that photo. My mother and my grandma had taken us door to door as we collected pillowcases full of candy, apples, and occasional nickels and dimes for people that ran out of candy or have simply been ill-prepared. And of course, there was the um, toothbrush and from the local dentist, which is funny because <laughs> I think we can all uh, kind of agree with that, to be honest. <clears throat> we had returned home from the brisk October night, already sugar high on whatever treats we had managed to shove into our greedy little mouths before my mother had been given the opportunity to examine them one by one for needles and razor blades. She would always do this while lecturing us with a story about a sweet little girl who hadn't waited for her mother to check the treats for these hidden tricks. The story went that the girl had crammed an entire mallow cup into her mouth and it promptly sliced off her tongue with a blade some sick person had hidden inside of it. She choked to death on her own tongue as a frothy blend of saliva, milk, chocolate, and cream had bubbled up from her pretty pink lips. Who tells her kid this? Hmm? Well, I mean, it makes me feel better as a parent. <clears throat> her mother had attempted to remove the little girl's tongue from her dying daughter's throat, with the blade still firmly affixed to it. 
It had severed her own finger in the process. My God, what a bad night, right? The story never detoured us. However, there's a however, a spooky jack-o'-lantern on our front porch still flickered dimly from within as what we made our way up to the steps. I remember the crunch of the crispy fall leaves beneath my feet as I made my way past that pumpkin. And I almost felt as if I had been grinning mischievously at me for some reason. Once inside, we surrendered our candy, took our costumes off, and were marched off to the bath as Mom and Grandma enjoyed their traditional pumpkin punch. And whatever creepy film was on that night. Once we had finished bathing and returned to the living room, Mom and Grandma would begin the painstaking and seemingly endless ritual of examining the candy. As each piece was approved for consumption, it was placed into a box on the coffee table. If there were any questionable treats, they would be placed in a separate small box underneath the suspicion that they required further scrutiny. And it was uh, many years later that I learned that in, in the examination process, it also served as an opportunity for them to pick out a few choice of candies for themselves. Okay, look. I'm a father of three, and I'm not going to lie to you. I do, I do do some security. Oh, I do security like mad. And with COVID hitting, I even sprayed down my treats last year. But... I did pick out a few I liked. Once the candy has been examined, the apple's tossed out the back door. And by the way, who gives an apple to a kid for Halloween? And any loose change is deposited into our piggy banks. We are allowed to choose five pieces of candy to enjoy while we watch TV. That year, the movie Halloween aired. For the first time on broadcast television, I bet that freaked a lot of people out. By the way, they thought that was bad. I mean, that's Jamie Lee Curtis Halloween. That's not no Rob Zombie Halloween. Anyways, with much uh, apprehension, my brother and I were permitted to watch Halloween that night. My father, being a stern disciplinarian, which never had allowed this, However, he was a truck driver, and fortunately for Nate and me, he was on the road that week. So we huddled under the blanket on the couch with a large bowl of popcorn and our little handful of candy and watched Michael Myers hack and slash his bloody way through the film as he stalked Lowest Road. We shrieked in terror. We would suddenly leap into view as a frightening and ominous music would increase in volume and intensity, announcing his arrival. Yeah, but that theme music stuck in their head. We cowered in fear and shouted, Run, run, as he would slowly creep after his victims and eventually catch them. Usually because they would, uh, you know, somehow trip or fall, the usual. We shuddered, we shuddered and gasped and sometimes covered our eyes with our hands as he delivered stab after bloody, gruesome stab to an innocent an innocent and frail teenage victim. When the film had concluded, Mom had asked if we were scared. Of course we said we weren't, but all the same, 
we both knew we would sleep with a nightlight on that evening. Well, it was rather late by this point, and after all the walking in the neighborhood and the lengthy movie, thanks to commercials, which, by the way, nowadays kids have no idea, uh-uh, and the ultimate crash from the earlier sugar high, I was tired and thus completely Obi-Wan Kenobi? No, completely unobservant. After I finished brushing my teeth with the new treat, the generous dentist had tricked me with, I went to the kitchen for a final drink of water and to kiss my mother goodnight. Nate was still in the bathroom as I made my way to my room, which was at the end of the hallway off the living room. Between my bedroom and living room and on the right hand side was my brother's room. Unbeknownst to me, my grandmother lurked within and I hadn't noticed that she was no longer in the living room. My grandmother wasn't very old in 81. In her early 50s anyway, her hair was beginning to gray, but her deep blue eyes were still very vibrant and piercing. Her least noticeable feature was also her prominent one. My sweet grandma wore a full set of dentures. I love to see where this story goes. <laughs> she was found of pushing them forward from within her mouth, crossing her eyes and making a strange growling sound deep in their throat. What no reason, no wonder why that guy scared me right now just thinking about it. But every so often she would chase little Nathan around the house like as if she cried out with terrified and nervous laughter. I would get such a kick out of this, laughing as he ran and calling him a chicken. It was funny to me then. Dot, dot, dot. Okay, let's see where this is kind of going. I was walking down the hall towards my bedroom, my toes sinking deeply into hideous plush carpet the color of pea soup. I was rubbing my eyes with sleepiness as I passed Nate's completely darkened room. With grandma, with grandma, crept quickly within into the dimly lit hallway. Her graying hair was intentionally um, in disarray, and she was on her hands and knees growling. Her, her, <laughs> sorry. <clears throat> her blue eyes glared and glowed, and in her left hand she held those dentures. They, they were clacking together and chomping. I'm trying to hold it together during this creepy pasta story because I was getting really funny images in my head. They were clacking together and chomping. They smiled at me. I swear those teeth smiled at me. Which is weird because a smile happens with the lips. But anyways, I shrieked like someone that had a large spider cross their bare foot while toweling dry after their steamy shower. That's really in-depth. I ran towards my room as if the flames were on my butt and my pajamas were catching on fire, and yet I could barely move. Every leaping step I made was being swallowed whole by the carpet. My head was turned towards my right, and out of the corner of my eye, all I could see was this monstrous, withered, and writhing imp chasing after me, its outstretched and gnarls gnarled hands snapping with sharp and glistening fangs that were slathered in dripping blood. 
The sound my loving grandmama was producing sounded like a beast conceived by Stephen King and Satan's own drunken harlot. I was simultaneously frozen by fear and propelled by it. I finally gathered my footing. With a sudden burst of childhood adrenaline, I barreled into my room. I slammed the door shut and climbed as deeply into my closet as I could. A cool and clammy sweat had broken out my forehead. My mouth had become as dry as a desert, and my tongue was swollen, sandpapery rock. I trembled in the closet for what felt like an eternity. Slowly, my heart began to resume its normal pace, and I gulped down several ragged and coming breaths. I could hear laughter echoing from the living room. It began to dawn on me exactly what had happened. I chuckled nervously to myself. Eventually, I emerged from the closet and moped up into the living room. My head hung low in shame, knowing that my grandmother, my grandma, had gotten me. The very same sweet, loving woman that had made the best cookies in the entire world had gotten me. That crazy old woman had gotten me good. Grandma passed away in 1994 after I've enlisted in the army and right before I shipped out for basic training. I was totally in shambles the day I found out. Because of the cancer, her death wasn't sudden nor entirely unexpected. But you know how it is. Just think, I wasn't ready. Oh, you just think I wasn't ready. Grandma... I wasn't ready for you to go. Grandma. After her uh, passing, my mother collected Grandma's meager belongings. He distributed some of them to my brothers and I, and we were only grandchildren. Her only grandchildren. I've been given her treasured sewing machine, a singer. She was proud of that machine. She had caught me, caught me. She had taught me how to use it many years ago, and I still can. She had been a seamstress for most of her life. She had learned the trade at General Motors in Detroit, Michigan. She would apply upholstery to the seats of cars that were headed to the assembly line. As she got older, arthritis had uh, reared its ugly head and made it difficult for her to work with her hands. She began to collect disability and survived as most do when in the same situation. My brothers and I would help her in her garden every day because Grandma pointed out seeds were cheap, tilling the soil and planting vegetables. We spent countless hours weeding and trimming, dusting with insect repellent and watering. Also watering while she supervised, teaching us a valuable lesson of child labor um, always watering while she supervised she would she she would she would can most of her produce in mason jars she would have enough to last her for an entire year but she would always send us out with boxes to those neighbors that she knew was already struggling to make ends meet in spite of that poultry check that government provided her home was always clean and inviting and always smelled richly of pine salt. She swore by it. She made perfect fried chicken and the best vegetable soup I've ever had. She was always a very kind, generous person. The very first thing to offer to any guest in her home was something to drink or to eat. For my 12th 
birthday, and every year until she died. I received an annual subscription to Reader's Digest. She knew my fascination with the words and stories and instilled that desire into me to never stop learning. She had a heart of gold, that woman. She will always be missed. My mother's 75th birthday was last November. In March, she had to move into an assisted living home. My youngest brother made his million in aeronautical engineering last year, and he ensured that Mom's new place was top-notch, and she wasn't spared any available luxury. As we helped her move into the new home, we had to pick up a lot of her stuff from the old one and put into storage. I tended to the majority of it, but I hadn't truly gotten around to really go through the bulk of it and determine what was eligible for donation and what was necessary to keep. By May, she slipped deeply into the depths of dementia. If anyone had uh, has this same experience, then I need to not explain. It's tragic. In June, she passed away peacefully in her sleep. She's loved and missed as much as now she ever was. I try to take comfort in the belief that she and Grandma would be up in there in heaven, swimming in the clouds and basking in the glory of God. That is, until I found one particular box labeled Grandma. So last Friday was the first day of an extended weekend for the holiday. My plan was to take my uh, wife and our grandkids out this lake in a large houseboat that I bought last year. She and the kids declined. The wife isn't so fond of boating. But because, as you can see, her skin is rather fair and she burns easily. She also not fond of the barbecue grill I installed. Terrified that the flaming sausage might take a flying leap from the grill and engulf the entire thing in flames. So, in, you know, instead of boating, I decided at least try to make a passing attempt at sorting out some of Mom's numerous boxes of knickknacks. I went to the storage building in town where we had rented a large indoor climate-controlled unit to store things in. Thank God for small favors. It was over 100 degrees that day. I had picked up a rather heavy box laden with some old precious moment figurines and when I did so underneath I saw another box the one labeled Grandma I carried it over to a dusty rose colored recliner and set it down on the floor I eased down in the chair and learned over to examine the box it originally held a window type air conditioner not a very big box but somewhat bulky I reached in my pocket removed a small knife it was a Gerber that Nathan had given me as a best man's gift at his wedding. I keep it oiled and sharpened. By the way, everyone should carry a good pocket knife. I slid the blade along the gap between the upper flaps where the tape held them together and pulled them back. Inside, I found quite a few interesting items. I found Grandma's old King James Bible with her family tree hand-drawn and labeled in the very front. Little slips of paper with verses and notes were scattered within the pages as well as a few five, ten, and twenty dollar bills. Oh yeah, money, money, money. I had to smile at that. Those bills were surely intended for her grandkids to be slipped into a card or mailed along with the gifts she had either made or purchased with their limited income. There were some framed photographs, some yellowing, but still clear and there was uh, 
several documents like her birth certificate, an employee of the year award that was with a gold General Motors logo. At the same point, she um, had got it laminated. I was gathering up some of those papers when I saw the top of a familiar item that I seemed oddly out of place. It was the top of a mason jar, perplexed. I reached down and gingerly plucking the jar out of the box, it made an audible slosh as I removed it. I almost dropped it when I saw what was inside. Grandma's dentures. Grandma. I snickered to myself as I peered out those gleaming white teeth inside. I thought, Grandma, you've gotten me again. I sat the jar aside the top of the cedar dresser that has seen better days. I spent quite a few hours in the storage unit, sorting, rearranging, reminiscing. Before I knew it, it was near supper time. I was genuinely, genuinely surprised that my wife hadn't rung on the phone. I pulled it out of my shirt pocket to look at it and realized I, I would have missed her if she had called. But there was no service inside the storage unit. Now, I'm not exactly sure what possessed me to take the mason jar home with me that day. Nostalgia, maybe? I'm not sure. Anyway, on the drive back, I would glance at it and snugly secure it in the drink compartment of my pickup truck, and I would laugh a little. Remembering that Halloween decades ago, when the crazy old cute had chased me down the hall, hair askew, grunting like a demon, why I ran for my life. As I joined my wife in bed that night, I brought the jar upstairs with me and I thought she'd get a kick out of the dentures. As I pulled back the sheet and blanket on my side of the bed and climbed in, I sat the jar down by my nightstand. She just wrinkled her nose and said, what are those? I looked at her for a moment, grinning, and said, those are my dear. Are you, is that grandma's teeth? Then told her the whole story, and we both laughed at my recollection. Recollect, I recalled brain power of that infamous Halloween decades ago. After I finished my story, she, <clears throat> she picked up her hardcover copy of Fifty Shades Free and, and began to read. Her usual routine for nodding off was continued watching the news for a little while until at least sleepiness finally overwhelmed me. I picked up the remote, switched off the TV, and returned into my nightstand. I was uh, about to turn off the lights my wife turned to me, removed her glasses, and said, Are you going to keep that jar right there on the nightstand all night? I asked, Why not? They're kind of neat, don't you think? She grinned and replied, Well, I think they're kind of gross and maybe a little creepy. But... If you don't mind them, then I don't. So I leaned over to her and gave her a kiss and whispered, Thanks, hon. I do like having them there. I don't know, it's kind of like she's here with me again. She blinked a few times and gave me a somewhat puzzled look and said, Well, that's just fine, I, I suppose. She closed her book, turned off her own lamp, and within a few moments, we gently were snoring. I dozed off shortly after. At first, I thought I was dreaming when I heard a muffled clack. I sleepingly dismissed it. Then I heard it again, this time urgently. Clack, clack, clack. The pungent aroma of pine saw stung my nostrils, and I fully awoke and rolled over towards the nightstand. In, in, in the jar 
Grandma's teeth were grinding. They greedily snapped down repeatedly. A mallow cup, mallow cup wrapper was swirling around in the water. Clack, clack. Clack, 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 clack. And that's it. <laughs> well, um, being that's a 6.8 out of 10 by 160 votes. Okay. Thank you, uh, Derek Artland. Well, that is, uh, that's it. <laughs> Okay, you know, I'll rate that as um, garbage. But I just, I don't know. I expected a lot of, a lot more out of that. But, all right, moving on. And if, I don't know if you guessed it or not by the beginning of the episode. But we're going to review real quick one of my fan favorites and not the original. This is, uh, this is not the 1973 motion picture. This is the 2010. It got a 6.5 out of 10 rating out of 118,000 votes, which I don't, I don't know. I might get this to Easter own because freaking I loved it. And real quick, um, before I move on, wait a second. Yes. Um, look, I rate these. Yeah, I have kind of bias on it because I watched them. I like them, but I will give you a, you know, a crappy one time to time. But actually, that creepy pasta was pretty crappy. But anyways, after a strange and insecure plane crash, an unusual toxic virus enters a quaint farming town. A young couple are quarantined, but they fight for survival along with help from a couple of people. Now, like I said, personally, I loved it, and the movie's called The Crazies, Fear Thy Neighbor. And I, I loved it. I loved it. Maybe it's because I'm from a rural town, so, like, I, I live in a community, a gated community, out in the middle of nowhere, but we have a water supply system. And, dude, this totally... <laughs> It could, I mean, like, you know, you contaminate that water supply. You know, in retrospect, it would contaminate every single person that lived in this um, lake. So, like, I could totally agree with this. But it was really cool. You know, I mean, it starts off with <laughs> the dude that's that's uh, at the baseball field. You know? And uh, it's just the way... I mean, when I first watched it, it's, it's the way that it all went down. Like, when they finally notice, oh, God, something's up, you know. Then the next you know it, the freaking, you know, military jumps in. And they're, like, setting her burning bodies. And they, they were, it was pretty, to me, it was pretty creepy. You know, to be stuck in that situation uh, where you're helpless, you know, and but that you know, one guy was really weird acting and ended up uh, scaring his wife and child in a closet, and then set the place ablaze by singing as the uh, sheriff rolled up. 
and the medical crew and the fire department showed up. He was just sitting there singing. But, uh, yeah, all in all, I thought it was a really great movie. Yeah, I recommend it. Um, I mean, personally, it's not like you're, you're ghouls and goblins, but, I mean, it's a really cool movie concept-wise, too. Um, you know, and there's a point in time where they're telling everybody getting these um, big semis, like the same ones they, they carry cattle in. <clears throat> and, you know, you think, oh, that's the best way. And then, you know, his wife, the sheriff's wife, uh, is actually pregnant, so she has a temperature. And they, you know, try to grab her and thinking she has the virus. But um, by the time they got to the very borderline of the town at a gas station there was all those bodies in those uh, cattle barns or cattle uh, trailers there was no intention to ever get these people out of there just to kill everything to wipe it just off the map as if it never happened so I thought it was pretty I thought it was pretty cool But it's definitely worth the watch. But I appreciate everybody um, listening to me ramble on and talk about various things. Um, if you have any, you know, uh, movie that you want me to review or to hear or um, a, an encounter, whatever, you know, cryptid, anything at all, any any suggestions. Um, or complaints or anything of that nature, you can always follow my Twitter um, at Boo Review Pod, and uh, be more than welcome to take into consideration anything. And please make sure, especially at the at the beginning stages of this podcast, make sure you leave a five star review if you feel so inclined to. That really helps me out, and it allows me to see my progression and. The way I'm going. But until next time though. You better watch out. Because everything I read still does have a grain of truth to it. But you all take it easy. And I'll see you next episode. On Boo Review. Mm -hmm.